Welcome, folks, to another Aliographic Creator Chat. Uh, today, I'm joined by Matt Broom, who is a Sydney-based comic creator who has written for Marvel, DC, Boom Studios, and Image. Uh, and when he's not writing comics, he teaches storytelling classes up in Sydney. Uh, he's joining us today to chat about Inferno Girl Red, which came out in trade format earlier this year. Um, and I think, as we're going to talk about later, we've got a second Inferno Girl Red coming soon so hi matt hey there thanks so much for having me james i really appreciate the chance to chat yeah it's, it's great um so to get started um as a national group across the land that we call australia alia graphic would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded i'd specifically like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nation as the custodians of the land where i'm speaking from and the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation, where Matt is joining us from, and to pay respect to their elders past and present, and to extend that to all First Nations people across the land. Absolutely. So, to get the questions kicked off, how did you first get interested in comics, Matt? I think I had a pretty traditional path, at least for people my age in that way, which is... I sort of fell in love with superheroes first. I think particularly Batman in Batman the Animated Series on television. And I wanted to seek out more of that character. And I knew that comics was the way to do that. But um, if <laughs> I, I, most people who were into comics and are sort of around my age will probably recognize the experience of being very excited to try comics, but then going to local news agents and realizing that unless you like really love the Phantom, your choices were pretty limited. Uh, so I had a, a bit of a hard time tracking down more stuff, but I ended up uh, in my sort of very early teens heading to the next uh, city over and tracking down a combination record and comic book store. And they had a huge collection of trades and I picked myself up a Justice League trade by Grant Morrison and was thrown right in the deep end of trying to figure out, because it was like issue 35, I think, of JLA it was picking up. And there was characters that I had never seen before and most people would not be familiar with. Um, but I deep end and fell in love even further. And from there, I fell in love with the medium and the the art um and i think now it's so much about the joy of collaboration um because i've done a lot of especially in a commercial sense writing by myself um but i really like comics because it allows you to create with other people in a group that's small enough that you don't just feel like a cog in the machine but big enough that you get to bounce our ideas around and have other people's work make you better. Um, and yeah, I just want to share the joy of the comics for that reason, I guess. Yeah, that's great. Grant Morrison would be an interesting one to to kind of be thrown in with too, because he's got some some very interesting concepts that he deals with. So Oh man, I, like that that Justice League, because I saw on the cover, it's like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman's like, like, great, I know those guys. Like Zoriel, Big Bada, Plastic Man. Uh, the Flash, except it wasn't the Flash we know. He was from the 35th century or something. It was it was wild, but you know, expanded by Horizons, and that that's always a good thing. And oh, and Big Bart is an amazing character. That's why Absolutely. why isn't, why isn't DC doing more with her? Um, <laughs> um, so we're a library group. How much have you had to do with libraries, both as a reader and as a creator of comics and other? stories again i'm sure this is a not uncommon story uh for people like me but i spent a lot of time in my school library uh in my teenage years and younger um i think coming from a background where we didn't have a lot of money it was sort of like my best access to books and stories but also i being a sort of like socially awkward young lad um I was much more interested in just grabbing random books off the shelf about like Norse mythology rather than trying to, uh, you know, figure out social interactions, I guess. <laughs> um, and I think, although, 
you know, I, I hopefully have progressed a little faster that now I still really value the haven that libraries are. And I think even now, cause like I, I work entirely from home these days, but it really helps to change my space to the creativity flowing. And one of my favorite things to do is go to the library. Um, in particular, the Newtown Community Library, it's very small, but it's just delightful in its vibe. And it's good to have reference material close to hand, but it's just like a nice environment, even just thematically, to be writing and telling stories. So, um, yeah, I feel like I have a very like soft spot in my heart for libraries. But I also really believe that if we're going to grow comics as, as a medium and teach people why I love it or show people why like it's, it should be loved as much as I do. Libraries are a vital place to be starting that engagement. Um, and if we aren't appreciating that connection point, then we're, we're going to only be hurting the industry. So I'm really passionate about making sure that what we have uh, is shown to librarians. So it's, I really appreciate things like this. So we can have that chance to to spread, but it's also suited for libraries and is written with libraries and, um, and bookstores in mind. So you do much uh, like events and like with libraries or is it more just this sort of thing, getting, getting the message out um, through, through talking to, to groups like us and stuff. I'm pretty new to do it, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I have actually, it's a very strange day for me, actually, because uh, talking to you today, this afternoon, and then at 11 p.m. tonight, I will be doing an interview with uh, the uh, American Librarian Association for their, uh, like, teen um, conference for, for library reading to sort of promote Inferno Go Red there as well. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, it's it's exciting, and I'm glad. Like, yeah. it just feels right that they kind of fell on the same day. But I'm also, yeah, I am still figuring out how to um, get more involved with libraries and make sure that that connection is strong. Which is why I, I really appreciate um, you guys and, and all that you do and helping to facilitate that. Okay. So, Inferno Girl Red is the is the yeah. uh, comic that we're talking about today. Um, now, on the Kickstarter campaign that you, you had for it, um, you describe it as combining superhero teen, superhero drama, teen angst, and uh, tokusatsu. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm -hmm. action. Yeah. Um, so to start with, do you want to explain for anyone listening um, who might not be familiar with the term what tokusatsu is? Absolutely. So tokusatsu is a Japanese term that directly translated means like special effects essentially but it's also come to be the name of a genre of storytelling uh and that genre of storytelling kind of has two halves to it one is kind of monster focused so that's where you get your um godzilla type stories and then the other half of it is their version of superheroes um which, and particularly in, in live action. So they have shows like uh, Carlin Rider, Super Sentai, Ultraman. Uh, and there are some similarities with Western superheroes, but there's also a lot that's different. Um, and I have sort of a personal connection to it because I grew up loving Power Rangers, um, which I discovered later in life is actually an adaption of a Japanese TV show. With elements of the teen superhero drama and the teen angst that Western audiences will be familiar with, um, and combining that with the that tokusatsu, um, striving for for something better and challenging the status quo and all of that is kind of how you've you've combined all of that into that one story. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big part of it. Um, then there is also some visual and aesthetic things that we draw on. Uh, my artist and co-creator partner, Erica D'Urso, is a big fan of anime as well as tokusatsu. And that's just a lot of where her sort of visual influences are from. Um, so a lot of that bleeds through. But we wanted to make sure that we were only taking like small parts of inspiration and not sort of like you know, copying things whole cloth, obviously, but also making sure that it wasn't a shallow reading of it. Uh, and I think that's why it was so important to me that we're trying to understand the construct of those stories and what they mean thematically and find ways to 
reflect that in our own way um, so that it's sort of a trying to use that to broaden Western superhero storytelling rather than just sort of like do a pastiche or anything like that, which wasn't in our interests. Yeah. So um, I guess then a big part of that is that the protagonist, um, Cassia Costa, is she is uh, challenging her status quo a lot as well. um, A lot of the story focuses on her balancing her natural pragmatism with belief in in something more in in um, uh, in the Inferno Girl Red uh, stuff. So, um, how did you find that balance between the that superhero action and the introspection? that this comic and the story that you're telling required. Yeah. Well, I think we, so Infernal Red kind of started with two different desires. Um, the first one, and I think it's a part of why I'm so passionate about this book connecting with library audiences is that I was in a Facebook group. So it's a long time ago of my local comic book store. And someone was saying, that I think it was her niece had just seen a lot of Marvel films and was interested in getting into comics. Where would it be a good place to start? And there were a lot of comics that were good for me when I was that age, uh, but maybe didn't hold up as well, just in the sense that, uh, for example, Ultimate Spider-Man is like a very good reinterpretation of Spider-Man as a teenager, but it's also over two decades old at this point. And it feels like it. It just doesn't feel like it. It reflects the modern teenage experience. And then there's really great comics that do. And I would put like Miss Marvel in that category, like G. Willie Wilson's original run is fantastic. But in issue one, you have tie-ins with the Inhumans. And then those, uh, the book gets renumbered and it's very hard to figure out like, what's the next book? Where do I go next? So I was a little hesitant to recommend that for that reason as well. And I just felt like there needed to be something for teenagers that had everything that they could want, but was also incredibly welcoming and had the form of a novel. So it it was a form that they could be familiar with from the start. Um, so we want we really wanted to create that. And the other part of it was that we we wanted to tell a teenage story that reckoned with the world as it is now. And I think that there's a very darkly interesting thing going on where we're putting so much of the world's problems and like generational trauma on the young people of today and saying like all of these problems that we've caused, oh, you're going to fix them. We think you're great. Like you've got so much energy and passion, go get them, go fix the world, which I think is horribly unfair. And also, a lot to put on people who are also trying to figure out who they are and becoming adults in the way that we all had to without all of that sort of extra baggage. So I wanted to try and uh, create a story vehicle that allowed us to explore that. And kind of at the heart of the story is this idea that to overcome incredible odds when things aren't in your favor, you need to draw on this incredible well of belief. You need to have some form of faith. And that can be very transformative and powerful. But as we've also seen in the world today, that can also quickly lead to self-delusion and become very damaging in that way as well. So it's this bizarre, incredibly difficult tightrope to walk where you have to believe against all odds that you could make a difference but you also have to exist in reality and not become untethered from the people around you and not become untethered from facts and the fact that sometimes things don't work out and life is hard. Um, So yeah, it's a book about how you reconcile all of that when it feels like there's darkness pressing in from all sides and there may not be a future at all. How do you be the best version of yourself with all of that going on? It seems um, there's that identity thing and being the best version of yourself as well. Um, but something else that I noticed about the about the book is um, so in Fanogarid has a secret identity, very common superhero trope. But it seems like um, practically every person she talks to is instantly, oh yes, you're in Fanogarid. Um, yeah. Was that was that an intentional thing of like, or is that um, 
you know, so I don't know. I'm trying to ask it without spoilers for, for people listening. But, yeah. Yeah, it's like I think part of the fun of trying to, like, reinvent superheroes, which is, you know, it's a it's a big claim, I suppose, but it's something that we're attempting to do is taking all of those familiar building blocks and then subverting them and challenging those expectations. Um, and I never want to do it from a place of like mean spirited. It's not like parody. We're definitely not out here trying to make fun of superheroes because I genuinely love them and I believe in their potential. Um, but I think you also have to acknowledge the building blocks that exist and redefine your relationship with them in some ways. Um, and I think that within the the realm of the book, Infernal Red is a mantle. It's a legacy. There have been previous Infernal Reds in the past and the most recent Infernal Red is someone who very much lived in that traditional superhero fashion where she had a secret identity and she kept everybody else at arm's length to, you know, protect them and tried to operate alone and found that exceptionally difficult. And Cassie is trying to blaze a new path and do things a little differently. So in that way, we're kind of, uh, there's a bit of meta commentary there, right? Where we're taking the old world of superheroes and making that into a person and acknowledging the achievements of that, but also the limits of that in sort of investigating if maybe there's a better, a better path forward. So, yeah, it's, it's, and it's, um, so that, that's, that's going to right at the end of the book. So I'm trying to uh, make sure I'm, as I'm phrasing stuff, not not give spoilers <laughs> and stuff. Um, but yeah, like that was a really interesting interesting scene, and that you know that that this is how I've always done. But let's try something new. Yeah, kind of from from someone who is I I got the got the distinct feeling is going to become very much a mental character going forward. Um, Absolutely, that was a really interesting thing that you don't often see. Uh, especially to, to form the relationship, a, a character who's taking on that mentor role, going, "Look, this worked for me, but let's try what you what seems to be working for you." Not, "Oh, do it, no, no, do it my way." Like that's that's what you usually get, and there's there's more of a um, more of a process. So that was really refreshing to see that a young person just being told, "Oh, yes, I'll listen to you," <laughs> straight Absolutely. off the bat. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's like you never want to make it seem too easy. But I also think it's really important as someone who is of an older generation now to create characters who has that sort of relationship with young people where like you, you're trying to guide them, but also you're recognizing that if you had everything figured out, we probably wouldn't be in this position in the first place. And you need to try and set aside your old traumas and recognize the mistakes that you make and be open to trying things in different ways because that's the only way that any of this is going to change. Was that part of setting it like on living in dormitories and stuff on a on a campus of of a um college um as well? Is that uh part of that trying to get into that that world of listening to to the kids and everything or young people, not kids, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a few reasons for that sort of setting. One of them absolutely is that, um, and also we wanted the nature of the school to be a little different. Part of it is just so it's exciting, right? Like we want it want it to be not just a, a regular high school that people experience day to day, but what might a high school, or it, it's sort of like almost like a bridge between high school and university, what might that feel like if it was handled a little bit better, if there was more room for creativity and sort of like mental health and emotional development was a little um, more tangible in the subject matter. Um, and we wanted to feel like a place where people can sort of become the best version of themselves. And then there's also just like logistical storytelling reasons why it's good to have everybody sort of crammed into one location. You know, there's a bit of a pressure cooker. Um, and I think that's where I think there's like, like boarding school fiction really works because it takes the teenage world and all of the drama that comes with that. And then it just sort of like squishes it into one spot and you're not allowed to leave. 
you know, like you have to stay in the pressure cooker for months and months and months, and that's going to get the most sort of explosive dramatic results. Um, so there's a bit of that both in sort of the campus and then I think we talk about this, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, when shortly after Cassia arrives at this new city, it's ripped out of our dimension and sort of cast into darkness and it has a thin protective bubble for the moment, but darkness and evil is pressing in from all sides and there's no escape. So that's a sort of like the next level of the pressure cooker where there's nowhere to go. You have to deal with the the darkness that's like right outside. Yeah. Um, so that's probably a really good segue into um, the the world that, that um that this is set in is part of something called the Massiverse. Mm. So do you want to tell us a bit about the Massiverse and how it all works? Yeah. So when I was in the earliest stages of developing Inferno Got Red, uh some of my friends and colleagues in the industry were also developing their own books uh with the hope of getting them published image comics. There was uh, Kyle Higgins and Marcelo Costa, who were creating Radiant Black, uh, Ryan Parrott and Abel on Rogue Sun, Melissa Flores on The Dead Lucky. And we wanted, in sort of, because like we're friends and we chat with each other, we were looking at what we were all working on and we saw some connective threads in terms of like our own passions and what we believe the book should be and how we want to sort of push the genre. But they're also extremely different, and we feel like they carved out different spaces. And we had the thought that we could link these and have them share kind of a narrative universe and take the idea of that that's been so popularized by Marvel, but explore what that could be if it was done with creators who own the characters and the stories and have no editorial mandates. There's no corporations telling us what to do. We make all of our own decisions. Um, So what that meant practically is that once every year or so, we do these crossovers called Supermassive, where characters from the books will interact uh, and there'll be like a sort of like big one-shot exciting event um, that will be informed by where the characters are at in that moment and sort of um, give you a bit more insight into those characters and then just the fun of seeing them all connect and then they'll sort of go their separate ways again. Um, but we wanted to do that, but also very vitally make sure that they would never, ever required reading so that if you just wanted to read Inferno Go Red, you read book one, you read book two, you read book three, hopefully, um, and so on and so forth. Same with Radiant Black, volume one, volume two, volume three. Uh, and you'll never be reading those and feel like you're missing something or you have to go and read something else. You won't notice any difference, essentially. Uh, and for us, that was kind of the best of both worlds. We could celebrate the fact that these characters can connect in certain instances and get some joy out of that and help sort of like cross-pollinate. Um, and, sh- and like, you know, if you're a fan of Inferno Go Red, you read a supermassive, you might see another character you love and be like, oh, they seem really interesting. I want to chase that down. But never, ever compromising the stories that we're telling individually. And it has a few other um, added benefits as well, because it, it, in some ways, there's like a collective bargaining element to it. Uh, For example, we are going to soon be launching a card game based on the Massive Verse um, that's a sort of like competitive card battler, but everything's all in one box, and it'll have... Uh, Inferno Go Red and The Griffin from our book, but also characters from all of the other books as, as playable decks. And that's something that we would never be able to get off the ground, at least right now, just for Inferno Go Red and Ditto for the others. But in coming together, we can do stuff like that that allows for that sort of exciting crossover. Um, so yeah, it's sort of like us trying to reinvent the superhero shared universe in a way that's hopefully all of the upside and none of the downside and I'm very happy with how it's come out so far. Uh, I feel like we've stuck to our guns of being really additive, but making sure that we're never uh, creating any problems for libraries trying to put stuff on shelves, for example. <laughs> yes, yes, that can be a that can be a big thing when you've got um, 17 different Thor ones coming out and trying to work out exactly which one to to do. And some of them you need to have read this version of the Avengers, and so it's yeah, it can exactly. be. Uh, 
So it's very much appreciate that you're, you're <laughs> making it as simple for us as possible. That's that's great. That's the goal. Um, so and the and the supermassive, they're trade paperbacks and um, or not. So not at the moment. They have been um, like they're sort of like I think about fifty page one shots that we've been releasing in comic stores. Our hope is that we'll do enough of them that we can then collect them into trade paperbacks that will be available in libraries and bookstores. We haven't got enough of them to do that just yet. Um, but even then that'll be like, there'll be one volume that will be able to sit alongside the other books. If yeah. bookstores and libraries want that, um, but they won't be so related to the stories that they need to go anywhere in particular, or that you need to get it for the others. It'll just be a nice little optional side thing. Yeah. So, and so, and the purpose is that, as well as you don't need that to follow Inferno Guerrero or Eldor or Radiant Black or any of those, you don't need to follow any of those to appreciate Supermassive either, or is that kind nope, of works? That's yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, we wanted to make uh, those stories kind of almost like it's like a sampler, right? Like a way to introduce all of those characters and see who you might like so you can branch out of those books if you want to. And part of that meant making sure that everyone gets something of an introduction so you, you have an understanding or at least enough to sort of like enjoy the story of who these people are, how they interrelate, what their sort of individual worlds are like before we get into the the meat of the supermassive story. Oh, well, when, I'm saying when, not if, you do get <laughs> enough to get the, the trade paperback, we'll definitely have to get all of the creators of the different ones that are combined into supermassive in for one of these chats. That'd be, get you all talking at with us together that'd be great absolutely we'll test the limits of zoom um, yeah. see how much it can handle <laughs> yeah. um so but back to inferno girl red um mm. now you created the series with erica de urso um mm-hmm. how did you how did her art influence the story and uh vice versa how has writing this story influenced the art that she's been she's been doing yeah i mean i I love working with Erica so much. I, it was a really long journey actually to find uh, the right artist for this project, or the right co-creator for this project. Um, I actually started working on Fernando Red about the same time as Kyle was saying on Radiant Black, but there was a like years difference in release just because I couldn't find the right person. I knew that I wanted a female or at least a non-male uh, artist and co-creator on the book because I knew that just me trying to tell a teenage girl's story wasn't going to feel particularly authentic, and it needed that extra perspective. Um, And when I finally found Erica, I was so excited, because she has this balance of incredibly, like, electric, kinetic action. Like, the action stuff feels larger than life, but the emotion is so like raw and human and like when a character's heart breaks your heart breaks and that's i knew we needed both of those things um and i when i was sort of pitching the book to erica i could just see like the way her eyes lighting up that like she got it and she was really excited about it and we developed this process where i would talk to her about the themes and the ideas and then she would sketch out whether it's like locations or characters um, or even just sort of like vibes of scenes. And that would make me realize actually what I wanted to do more. Uh, and I would go back and, and sort of revise my plans. And we we do that bounce back and forth as we go through production. So I'll write a loose outline. She'll read that. She'll give me some feedback and like do some early sketches and and things like that. We'll bounce back and forth on the sketches. Then I'll write a script and then she'll do the art. And then I'll often go back and rewrite the script to match the art better uh, because I've given, well, not given, we're co-creators, but like we share creative control. And in the script, I'll suggest ways that she might frame things. Uh, but then she knows she has the creative control to completely reframe that and at, uh, like at, come at the idea from a different perspective. So I might suggest like a five panel page that's very tight with quick beats and she might go, actually, this needs just like one big splash moment. I'm just going to handle it like this. Um, so I'll then sort of just like, yeah, rewrite my script to make sure that I'm taking advantage of that. And I, I really value that process because 
I think that's why the world feels so realized is because it's not one person and their ideas. It's that idea that's evolving constantly by bouncing back between us. And even uh, like Agomonti, our colorist in the book, it has so much of a role in the identity of the book because how, of how he uses light and, and shadow and certain choices of like reversing colors in moments of intense, like the peaks of action uh, influences how I write the pacing of action scenes. I know that I want to hit that, like you build tension, you build tension and there's like inflection point. And I just know that Eagle is going to really hit that moment. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, I, I love this stuff. That's my favorite part about making comics is having other people make you better and seeing what you make altogether. And yeah, like all of the sort of, it's funny, Erica denies that she has a good fashion sense, but all of the characters in the book, I'm just like, oh, they're so cool. How are they so, they're, they're all so cool and in different ways, you know? Um, and Apex City is such a cool place and it's all cool in a way that I'm just not. Like I could never, um, you know, I feel like I bring stuff to the book, but I'm not cool in that way. Um, and, with, you know, with a book like this, you want it to be cool. Uh, and Eric is so, so vital to that. Mm, yeah, I, I noticed that all the all the back matter that was included in the version that I've got, I'm not sure that's in the trade paperback. I think that's just in the Kickstarter. In the, in the Kickstarter hardcover, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, um, but all of that that back matter, including, like, the design of the, the university and, and the... Um, all of that really gave that sense of of all of these different elements coming in bet- between all the all the people involved, which was yeah, it was so great to to get to see that that bit of the process too. Yeah, um, so it's very like the collaboration, very obviously very um, communicative and and building and everything. Did it ever become? Did you ever butt heads about? No, actually, I think this needs to be this way, and, and Eric is going. No, I think it'll work better this way, and and if so, like, how did you deal with that? That's yeah. I'm not sure that there was ever any point where we really where there was like real contention. Um, yeah, I think if anything, there was just like processes of refinement, um, especially with like the character design stuff. Some characters came fully formed like immediately whereas the superhero costume for inferno got red took a lot of refinement and back and forth and i don't think it was ever that erica was like this is the right thing and i was like no it isn't i think it was more that erica was trying a bunch of stuff and we both knew it wasn't quite there but we also didn't know how to get it there because we were really trying to be like what is a superhero but like 10 years from the future, like, and not in the future in sort of our world, but like, how will the medium have progressed in 10 years time? Can we try to like leap ahead and get there? Um, and it was just like so much back and forth and tweaking different things. And, um, yeah, and like, like one like, of the things that, that stood out to me was the, um, uh, a lot of the stuff that was that you were again showing in the back matter. Um, were designs that didn't have the whole face covered. And then that yes. moment that Eric has put, has written in that as soon as Ego was on board, she was like, oh, yes, I can cover the whole face because I'm no longer scared about being able to show all the emotion because I know that Ego's colouring will be able to do that. Absolutely. Like, that yeah. was a huge moment. And I think, like, I had a feeling early on that we did want to do that full face cover. Um, and I think that was a moment of trust between her and Igor. And I think that's something that just comes through the creative process. And I certainly have that as well. I used to script very tightly, whereas now I know what moments it would be helpful to Erica for me to be very precise uh, and what moments where it would serve everybody better if I just sort of say, like, here's kind of the vibe we're going for. Show me what you've got. Um, and she could just cut loose and find her own interpretation of that. and that's the trusting relationship that builds up when everyone has the same goal uh, and knows each other well enough to know when you can sort of like throw them the ball and just like let them run. And it's a, it's an incredible feeling. And you're based in Australia. 
Eric is mm-hmm. over in Italy, and right. Igor's over in Italy as well. Yep. Oh, Igor, sorry. And uh, your uh, letterer, Becca yep. Carey, is in the US. And Kyle Higgins, who we've spoken about as the creator of Radiant Black, but is also the editor on Inferno Go Red, is also in the US. So this is a very global team. How does that collaboration process work across three countries and that are in uh, three time zones that are about as you know about as different, different as they can be? be. <laughs> yep. Uh, I, Becca was in Ireland for quite a while as well. Um, so yeah, it's with great difficulty. I think would be the answer to that question. Uh, lots of emails. I think that I have become unfortunately attuned to different time zones uh, because so much of what I do is working with people in the US and and often in Europe. So I, um, like doing just this interview with you on a nice afternoon is lovely uh, because it's often like get up at 2 a.m. because you need to do a podcast in America. Um, So I've just sort of like taken on board the fact that I need to be super flexible with my schedule and they are a little bit as well. Uh, and we use those opportunities to chat, you know, in person over Zoom because I feel like that's a really necessary and efficient way of doing it. But there's also just a lot of emails. Um, we try to be very diligent about keeping records um, and, you know, having the lines of communication be clear and a very well-managed Dropbox um, and all of that sort of thing to manage it. But there's just a lot of flexibility required. You know, I think there are some downsides to trying to do comics in Australia, and that is definitely one of them for sure, Um, but a a manageable one. Well, hopefully as the Australian comics industry grows, it'll become less of a thing. Um, He's hoping. Fingers crossed, yeah. Um, So uh, before we we move on to other stuff, I want to, Keep talking about the art a bit because going mm. back to Cassia, one of the things that I found particularly interesting was that she has uh, vitiligo, which mm. is um, a condition where um, pigment either doesn't develop or um, disappears from from your skin in in certain areas. Um, and she's got this on her face and her hands. Um, and the reason I found this so interesting is, well, for starters, you don't see many protagonists with vitiligo, but also at no point in the comic comic is it commented on in any way. It's just uh, it just uh, a part of who she is and, and no one no one bats an eyelid. Was that acceptance and inclusivity planned or did it develop organically as the story developed? Yeah, it actually wasn't planned at all, at least on my part. Um, it's interesting. I was talking about the process of designing superhero costume for Fargo and how iterative that was. Kind of the opposite with Cassia, where I told Erica who Cassia was as a person, like the challenges that she goes through and sort of her personality uh, and where she's coming from emotionally. I didn't give any sort of direction on um, sort of aesthetics. And uh, Erica came up with three different concepts for the character. And one of them was exactly how Cassia is in the book now. And I, as soon as I saw that version, it was like Cassia had already existed and Erica was just drawing that character. It felt so fully formed. It just felt right. It was like somewhere out there in the sort of like the ether that was always going to be Cassia. And then here she is. Uh, and that, when I said that to Erica, I was like, oh, definitely that one. Erica said, like, oh, thank God. Like, I, I, that was the one. I didn't want to just send you one. I wanted to give you options, but that's who I wanted Cassia to be. And that initial sketch had Vitiligo. And it's, I think, something that informed or was informed by our discussions in the sense of, I think it's another small reason why. Cassie is perhaps a little bit more reserved and she feels like she does like, she definitely doesn't take anything for granted and perhaps has a small element of cynicism in her in regards to how life has treated her and and how life can sometimes go. Uh, And I think that's something that I sort of 
brought into the character as I was thinking about her, but I also never wanted to make it, um, I guess, as you said, like a big scene where she says like, and also this happened to me because that just never struck me as how Cassia would verbalize that. It was, it's not something that's the most pressing thing for her, but it is a small thing that informs her experience. Um, in the same way that like, I knew that I didn't want this character to be a man because I felt like this sort of like underdog story, it, you know, having that be a white man felt inauthentic. Um, and I think this is just another small layer of that, that specificity that informs life experience and informs that perspective that Cassia has uh, both a good and ill and sort of challenges her um, and her sort of like journey of growth. Uh, and it's just like, I think another, like a little artifact of how beneficial that creative process and in collaboration is because it's so perfect and it feels right. And it helps us bring us to like a small element of representation that you don't see very often, but I, I wouldn't have, if, if it was up to me, um, I would not have come up with that myself. And it only exists because of what Erica brought to the project. That's uh, yeah, that's amazing. And and uh, vitiligo is it? I, is it the, ah, the curse of the I'm... curse of reading? I've never actually heard the word <laughs> pronounced. So I'm exactly the same way. I've read a lot about it recently, and I have <laughs> not spoken about it. So definitely well, don't take me as possible. Yeah. Well, my, my both of our apologies then to anyone listening who, um, if we've if we've got the pronunciation of that wrong. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So um, now the book was kickstarted. Um, yes. And very successful um, Kickstarter. It more than doubled uh, the uh, forty-two thousand that you were asking for. It was over a hundred, I think, in the end, um, which is uh, very uh, like that's that's really impressive. Um, yeah, what was the thinking behind kickstarting it um, rather than going down one of the more traditional publishing routes that you that people you know, that you hear about people taking. Yeah. Well, I mean, for us, it came back to the library and bookstores thing and, and format. We wanted to do a novel. Um, and if you're writing single issues of comic books and you're, I think if you're doing it right, at least you're writing it in 20 page chunks where each of those 20 pages has a story of, of itself that eventually builds to something bigger that you collected a trade. Uh, but you have to write to these intense peaks and valleys that gets you to a cliffhanger every 20 pages so that people who are buying that format have something that is a whole unit of storytelling that is satisfying. But as much as I love writing for that format and love comics that are like that, we wanted to do something that was a little bit different and felt in structure more like a novel so that was more accessible. So if you've only read... YA prose novels and you want to dabble, you could read this and it would feel familiar enough in its structure that you you are sort of like swept up into it. And it also allows us to have more time with the characters and take those those bigger moments and have long conversation scenes, or even at the, the climax of the book, an action scene that is like almost 18 pages long, which in single issues of comics would be basically the whole issue. So you probably could do that. But it's very, very hard to get a comic made that way because getting funding in advances is very difficult when you can't say, well, every 20 pages we'll send it out and people pay for it and get some money back. Um, so there was no way of us funding the book. And by that, I, I really just mean m mostly paying for Erica and Igor to live um, for the almost a year that they spend working on the book uh, while making it in that format, while also keeping creative control of the book. There were avenues we could have gone down where we sold the rights and in return we got funding that would have allowed us to produce the book, but that would have handed creative control over to other people. And we were really passionate about doing it ourselves and making all the calls ourselves because in a lot of ways, we wanted to do something that felt a little bit more progressive and 
uh, challenged the ideas of traditional superior comics. And I think it would have broken our hearts a little bit if we got a long way down this path and someone reined us back in and said, no, you can't do that, you can't do that. Uh, which meant that really the only path open to us to pay for the creation of the book was Kickstarter. Um, so we made the pitch to the world not knowing how it would go and being almost entirely unknown creators, and the response was incredible um, and incredibly validating. And seeing the excitement that people had and doing fan art like two days after the Kickstarter launched um, for this character that didn't exist at that point uh, was very moving. And I'm always incredibly appreciative and grateful that people were excited enough to sort of invest in in our world and, and give us a try. And so obviously the the investment of the people was was great. What were some of the other good and some not so good aspects of the of the Kickstarter approach? It's there's a lot of pressure, right? Like people pay you a lot of money up front and then you have to deliver and you have to do that when the thing isn't real yet. Um and we learned firsthand how difficult that could be when Erica injured herself while drawing and couldn't draw for months. She actually, it got so bad where she was hospitalized for a bit and couldn't pick up a fork to feed herself. Her arm was so busted. And it's very difficult to tell people, like, the book's going to be late. You're going to have to wait. There's nothing we could do. If we push Erica now, we may make it permanent. She might not ever be able to draw again, and that's her livelihood ended forever. Um, and that was really stressful for me. Uh, but... I learned that if you're just honest and transparent with people and you explain them the situation and let them in, that for the most part, they will be incredibly understanding and supportive. Um, what we heard so, so consistently was, we understand, make sure Erica's okay. We're very excited for the book, but that's not important. more important than someone's health. You know, the book will be done when it's done. Um, so that that was great. Um, and then there was also like, because of those delays, the shipping environment in the world changed, especially in the middle of the pandemic. Um, we had to switch printers and then to find a way to get it to people without waiting like literally six months just to have the book shipped. We had to take a much more expensive option, which costs us a lot more money. And in that time, currency conversion rates changed dramatically. So I was getting US dollars in Kickstarter sent to me in Australian dollars here, which I then had to convert back to the US dollars and then to Euros to pay Erica and Igor. Uh and as the currency rates fluctuated, that really turned not in our favor. There was just a you know, it's a lot. It's messy. It's very much like running a small business. Anyone in that position will know it's just hard and you're gonna be stressed out a lot of the time. Um but again the it was all made worth it by how supportive and excited people were and there's something really beautiful about being able to share the book as it's in process showing people little glimpses of like hey guess what erica drew today check this out um and it's not colored yet it's not lettered yet like you know trust us it's gonna get better but look at this and people being excited to feel like they're a part of it and they are absolutely a part of it because they are the ones who made sure it was able to happen so yeah it's it's it was lovely and scary, I guess. Yeah. And not just the book itself. I can't help but notice on the shelf behind you were some of the one of the stretch goals. The um yeah. what what was the thinking behind the replica Inferno Girl Red helmets that you had as as one of the stretch goals on the on the um campaign? Well, because of my affinity for Power Rangers, I happen to know some people who make replica helmets, Power Ranger helmets for fans. Um, and one guy in particular who does just incredible work. And I knew that I having him do it, if I had to go red replica helmet, would be incredible. And this would be a way to do that if people were interested. But it was also like, is anyone going to want this? Like, again, this is a character that did not, exist really at the point where the kickstarter was launched and we're asking people to not only be excited enough to buy our book but also for some people be excited enough to spend like eight hundred dollars on a replica helmet for a character whose story they've never read 
Um, so I was very like, I don't think this is going to happen, but look, we could offer it and see how it goes. And yeah, we, I think we sold out of almost all of our, um, allotment of them. And I still get messages from people like, Hey, you're going to do that again. I really want one of those. So yeah, it's, it's so cool. And it's like lovely to have such a tangible representation of this thing that we created, um, so close to hand. It's a, yeah, it's really nice. So, and you planning on something similar for the for the upcoming Kickstarter? We're not going to do helmets for this Kickstarter, just because I'm I'm so glad we did it and the quality was incredible. But the cost, more of shipping and insurance of the shipping than anything, proved to be prohibitive. There's a lot of learnings of the first Kickstarter where, you know, we learned what was actually feasible or not, and. Um, one of the things we realized was that's probably not the best form to sell something like that. Um, so instead, we're focused on things that are a little bit more manageable, like the outprints that we do. And that's one of my favorite parts of doing the Kickstarter is reaching out to a bunch of different artists who work I love and asking them to interpret our world with their sort of own like flair and vision. So there'll definitely be some of that in the Kickstarter this time as well. That's great. Um, so we've mentioned a few times but do you want to tell us a bit about this kickstarter and uh, what's next for inferno girl red more generally absolutely so yeah we're uh at a time of recording not too far away from the launch of the inferno girl red book 2 kickstarter uh but if you as is quite likely you've never read any inferno girl red before we'll also be including inferno girl red book one hardcovers and digital copies. So you could join us on the ground floor. You don't need to have experienced anything. You can jump in now. Uh, we have a pre-launch page up now. And if you search Infotogo Red book two or Kickstarter, that'll come up. Uh, also, I think infotogorred.com is redirecting there right now. So that's an easy way to find it. And yeah, I really encourage you to check it out if you're interested because th- through this uh, avenue, we do oversized hardcovers of the books which are not really available anywhere else. They have exclusive covers, excuse me, they have some back matter that you won't find anywhere else and also exclusive prints and, and things like that. So lots of cool extras um, and probably like the, the nicest format of the book as well. So, and it's also just like, again, it's fun to be part of the process, especially as we're moving into the future and creating the next stage of Cassia's story. Um, and expanding on the ideas of the first one. So, yeah, encourage everyone to check that out if you're interested. Yeah, so that's, so the hardcover Kickstarter edition of book two will be through that. But you can also, if you missed it in round one, you can also get that that Kickstarter exclusive uh, of of book one through this second campaign as well, yeah? Exactly, yep. Cool. So, um, and... What's next for you? So obviously, Inferno Gurid has has been a big part of um, your your work for quite a while, and yeah. I assume will continue to be so, and, and hope it hope it will. Um, Hopefully, but um, yeah. So, but what else are you? What else are you doing? What can? What else can people? Where else can people see your work? All of this sort of stuff. Yeah. So a bunch of stuff that I can't talk about right now, but is very exciting. Um, I'm actually doing or helping out on another Kickstarter, a friend of mine, Kelly McMahon, who's in Australia now living in LA, is a graphic artist, and she has been designing decks of playing cards um, that are just absolutely gorgeous. And her latest one is sort of 1920s noir themed. And I worked with her to write a murder mystery that you can play using like a little detective's journal and also the playing cards themselves and all the character art on those to sort of uncover the mystery. Um, that's called Bad Blood, and I think that has a pre-launch page up now as well. So if you search Bad Blood uh, on Kickstarter, you'll likely find that. Uh, I'm doing a few short stories. I've got a Power Rangers short story coming up in the 30th anniversary annual coming from Boom at uh, the end of August, and some short stories for major publishers that I can't quite talk about just yet. Um, but my passion will always be creator and comics where we get to do our own thing and Infinigo Red is one of those and there will be something else of that vein uh coming from a from image next year as well which is really exciting mysterious and uh 
yeah keep <laughs> keep watching this space <laughs> that's it um, so, like anyone in publishing can um, oh yeah it's that's what it feels like you get all this stuff going on you could not talk about not it, talk about it. And... yeah yeah no i i i completely understand um yeah uh, it's but no it's it's good it heightens the mystery like what's what's coming what's going on so absolutely um so one of the things we always ask um, the people who come on these creator chats is what are three comics or graphic novels that you've enjoyed recently and that you would encourage others to check out? Ah, good question. Um, I mean, I think maybe this is more like, you know, for writing purposes, but I did go back to read all of Ultimate Spider-Man um, before working in front of Red. So I find it such a, inspiring touchstone and there's just so much of it i mean i've got it uh, back there ish um like over 100 issues in hardcover that you could just sort of tear through which is absolutely amazing uh i will always love day tripper um which i think that was vertigo um was, i forgot uh, the artist gabriel bar or yes, fabian yes. moon both of them, yes, I believe yes. they were together on it. Uh, it's just such a beautiful, poignant story of what a life is and what a life means, examined through like how you recontextualize that through death. Um, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And last one, I would say, and it's only just starting to come out now in single issues, so the trade will be a little while. But there is an image series called Deep Cuts that my editor, Kyle Higgins, and a friend and jazz musician professor of his, Joe Clark, have been working on. And it is a story of jazz through the decades. And it moves sort of decade through decade following different characters. Um, And they're all sort of like oversized chapters. And the art is absolutely gorgeous. And it's such a... Yeah, like moving an artful examination of like what music means to different communities and how it evolves over time. So definitely keep deep cuts on your radar. I think it's just it's it's real art and it's very moving. That's great. So yeah, I haven't read deep cuts yet, but it was one that I was looking at. Um, but yeah, I I always love it when when it's stuff that um, that that I'm already across that that people are saying that. People in the chats are like, "Oh yes, this is a good one to read." So, um, for for a long time, Day Trip was the was my go to um, response whenever anyone said, "Oh, comics are just for kids." I'm like, "Look at Day Tripper, seriously!" Absolutely, it's <laughs> it's so easy to hand to people and be like, "This is amazing. You're gonna love it." Yeah, and like for everyone, everyone can can enjoy Day Tripper. I think. Mm. Yeah. Um. So that's uh. We're coming up on on the the amount of time you've so kindly uh. Uh, agreed to uh, chat to us and everything. So um, before we head off, what's the best way for people to keep updated on your projects? Yeah, probably uh, on Twitter. I'm going to call it X. On Twitter, I'm at Matthew Groob. That's Matthew with one T or one word, M-A-T-H-E-W-G-R-O-O-M. I also have a website, which is mattgroom.com. Again, Matt with one T. And, yeah, that's probably the best ways uh, to follow where I'm at, I'll always blast out what I'm doing from those venues. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, and for thank those you of having you, me. Oh, yep. And for those of you uh, listening in, um, you can keep in touch with Ali Graphic um, through our socials. We've um, uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter X, whatever Musk is doing with it. Um, and and we also have a um, website uh that is currently aliagraphic.blogspot.com but um uh keep an eye on that space because uh we may be moving to one um more in the alia.org.au um mm-hmm. uh wagon house and everything so um keep an eye on that space so few changes but um if you if you follow the ones that we currently have, we'll definitely be letting you know where to where to move to if if we do uh, if we do move anything. So, thank you for joining us, Matt. And uh, yeah, thank you again. It was a delight. Really appreciate it.